Hello, it's good to have you with us. I'm Dylan Haskins. And I'm Lisa Hannigan. Thanks for downloading the podcast uh, where we chat about some of the recent cultural sounds and happenings that have tickled our fancy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're floating in space. Yes, we donned some 3D glasses and came as close to floating in space as we're probably ever going to get and all from the comfort of the lovely Rio cinema as we watched Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity starring Sandra Bullock, George Clooney and Lisa Hannigan. Not a word of a lie there. Uh, more on that later. Spurred on by the theme of physics, we'll be talking about an online video from the Science Museum in The Guardian where a theoretical physicist and a novelist get intimate talking about the crossover between arts and science. We also read Malcolm Gladwell's new book, David and Goliath, about underdogs and how they actually often succeed. But just to throw a spanner in the works, the movie Lisa's prescribed for me this week is also about a bunch of underdogs whose glorious repeat cock-ups form the storyline in The Big Lebowski. Shit. This is soundings. 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 Sounding, 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 sounding. <laughs> wow, that was atmospheric. It was good. Thank you for your space sounds. Yeah, you're that welcome. Was... I thought I could contribute something <laughs> in this one. That's, that's your disembodied head voice jingle, is it? No, that's my 2001 A Space Odyssey jingle. Right, haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course. Of course. I wasn't lying when I said you star in Gravity, was I? No, it's pretty much about me. Um, uh, no, I, I, I do the a little bit of Lady Space Theremin in the background that I, I went to see it and I, I knew I was there. I don't know if anyone else would, but yeah, I'm in the background just going... I thought you stole the show, to be honest. Did you? Yeah. 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 Thanks. Sandra Bullock, fine. <laughs> Whatever. But it's mostly, yeah, she was sort of the visual representation. She was, she was there, but I feel like the soundtrack was guiding you more. <laughs> well, by now you've probably heard about Gravity, which stars Sandra Bullock alongside Lisa Hannigan. Um, no, Sandra Bullock plays mission specialist Ryan Stone, an engineer on her first shuttle mission, along with veteran astronaut Matt Kowalski, who's played by George Clooney in command of his last flight before retiring. And in what seems like a routine spacewalk, disaster strikes when their shuttle is destroyed, leaving Stone and Kowalski completely alone, tethered to nothing but each other as they spiral out into the blackness. It is a 3D visual feast, which grossed 500 million at US box office, has a 96% rating on Metacritic, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, and is a sure bet for the Oscars. Wow, that's a huge... I've never heard of anything being in the, the high 90s and Rotten Tomatoes. Certainly not in the cinema, maybe like long after it's been... So it's just amazing. Well, there has been people on talking about, you know, like griping about certain aspects of the scientific accuracy of it. Yes, I did watch a thing when Neil deGrasse um, Tyson, the <laughs> the astrophysicist, um, took to Twitter to say things like, uh, it shouldn't be called gravity, it should be called zero gravity and things like that. Um, and <laughs> Good one. And he's sort of pointing out that, you know, some scientific problems with it. But then at the end of it all, he did say, but I did really enjoy that movie. It was great. You know, and that's why it's not a documentary. I don't mind that sort of. You know, why you don't really want science to get in the way of of a good story. There is suspension of disbelief, we expect it when we go to see a Hollywood blockbuster, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I I will watch uh, David Attenborough if I want to know the ins and outs of of how the world works. But um, yeah, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go to the 3D cinema for that. And now, Dr. Rhinestone (laughs) traverses the earth. Your David Attenborough is markedly better than your Icelandic, I will... (laughs) What's wrong with my Icelandic accent? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! The film is only an hour and a half long, which is very short. 
Yeah, it actually zipped along, I thought. I don't think I've ever come out of a cinema that quickly. I think I was out with sort of like quarter past eight. And then I'm glad I did go to the early showing because it took me at least three hours to calm down. You know, like I found this completely physically affecting in that you, you're getting these shots of adrenaline throughout the whole film. They really make you feel like you're in the position of the protagonist all the time through the music, through the rumbling sounds that you can't necessarily even hear. Um, and and probably that there's only two two cast members in it being Clooney and, and, and Bullock. The rest of the cast are just voices. And when for, for a lot of the film, it is just Sandra Bullock. You yeah. feel kind of like you're in there with her. It's, it's, it's almost claustrophobic, but in an amazing kind of way. Yeah, well, the, because it's in space and it's the, the the vastness of it is so loud. You know, it's so it's so overwhelmingly physically present. Um, the emptiness, and it's it's incredible. I read in a in a article in the LA Times that about sixty percent of the film is made up of twelve long shots, which is such an extraordinary statistic. Mm-hmm. And that the first scene is incredibly long. And so beautiful and sort of balletic in style. It's really something. And there's there's a few extraordinary shots where perspective changes and um, you're you're outside a helmet and then seamlessly inside a helmet. And it's just masterful, the whole thing. The special effects, apparently it was shot over two summers. Well, it took a while for them to be able to actually do the film because of the technology required for it. But it was shot over two summers. They do a year of pre-programming and then they couldn't see anything that they'd actually shot for five months later until they'd rendered it because if you imagine all of those effects the wow. the rendering time you know if you've ever used Final Cut or any any of the other video editing programs to render something takes a while with a normal video imagine all of the stuff that's going into wow. that it's probably pure special effects heft so it must have been a, a, a real wait to wait and see anything but he said when they did wait five months later they, they only got to see about seven or eight seconds of it and wow. see how kind of cool that was so the director, uh, Alfonso Cuaron, said he, he enjoyed every bit of the process, but he'd never do it again. <laughs> so it's a nice thing to have done, but not something to repeat. Probably a great experience in retrospect. An interesting aspect, he says he loves when he's making films, he loves the accidents that happen. You know, when actors do certain things and that those natural accidents that happen when you're filming it. But when you're relying on something that's built up so much from technology... None of that really happens in the same way. Exactly. Like when they work out every single angle and one of the most extraordinary things is that there's no horizon. There's no there's no up or down or sideways and the the camera is is floating in 3D and the people are floating in 3D and everything everything is on is on moored. And so you couldn't you couldn't just sort of go, "Oh yeah, I like the way she moves her head there. Let's change everything around." Yeah, he said the next film, next film he wants to do is a walking film where he just, one walking, walkie-talkie shots, that's it. Yeah. I can no imagine. more float it, floating. I can imagine. It must be very hard to direct someone floating around in, in, you know, you imagine the environments that these things, to completely demystify it, that it must be shot in. She must be in some room against some kind of green screen or something. Wasn't that the four years of, of, um, of technology development was yeah. trying to get a realistic looking 3D that didn't involve those, I think they're called vomit comets where you go up to zero gravity and then sort of plunge down and you get sort of 80 seconds of filming time I think that's how they used to do it right um, I could be this but could I mean, be one the, of my dream facts but for, the, sure. for the actor you know for 
Sandra Bullock to be yeah. simulating this without any of that visual stimulation to look at. Yeah. She's just in a room looking at a bunch of cameramen with a lens. In front. I mean, she's an actor. That's what they do. But to do it completely, an entire film like that, where yeah, where you're sort of hanging my hat on goes off to her. Yeah, her her tear goes off to you. That was one of my favorite bits. At some point, there is a a three D tear that 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 comes looming towards you. Did you see that bit? No, I saw the bit where it's she's identifiably wearing makeup though, which I thought oh, oh, she got to she got to put on the makeup in space. <laughs> Impressive. I wonder do they have space well, makeup. You, who knows if if George Clooney is your co astronaut? Do you want to look your best? Oh, put on a bit of put a bit of mascara. Not that uh, not that Sandra Bullock needs any. One of the aspects of the film that has been really lauded and is particularly relevant to you as well as Stephen Price's score and how the, the the score plays such a part in the atmosphere of the film. It's there throughout. There's very little. They didn't want to do any sounds in terms of the normal film sound effects that astronauts wouldn't hear in space. So there's certain kind of vibrations and things like that in their spacesuits that they would hear in space. But the rest is this... Score that's not like your conventional Hollywood action score. Yeah, it's there's parts a, of it that are, but most of it's not. No, it's, I think the score is an extraordinary achievement, and particularly for that that bit that you mentioned, because so much of the music has this sort of dull, thudding, sort of creepy quality because it's inside their helmets. You really, it, it's really claustrophobic and really uh, viscerally affecting. You know, and I think there is actually heartbeats and things going along that that uh, that are part of the score that really that that are sort of unnoticeable apart from uh, your 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 subconscious. Here's a listen to one of the the tracks on the on the score. It's called ISS, which we think Lisa's on. That's one of the ones where I, I think I could actually identify your voice when I listen back on the soundtrack. <laughs> there's other ones where there's... Apparently he slowed down some of the voices to really slow things, put everything through processors as well. Yeah, there's a really interesting mix of, of organic instruments and electronic instruments, but then everything's treated to make it seem... seem not of this world, which is not supposed to be. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the... Especially if you're singing vocals up that high and they're and they're on mad vocals. I mean, you could be you could be a violin or a theremin or anything. You know, I did, that's the point. Did you know what what the film's going to be like when you went in to record? How did that even come about? Yeah, well, I went into his garage, Steve Price's garage, um, and he had he, a little studio set up in there and a vocal booth, and and he had a big screen in front of his desk, which he'd sort of tilt towards me, and explain sort of what was going on in this scene and. Uh, and I he'd, and he'd tell me the melody that he wanted, and um, and he'd sort of try and time it to the pictures. But actually, at that stage, a lot of it was there were some scenes that were fully um, fleshed out, but then there were some scenes where you know it was obviously drawings, and uh, and and it was just uh, like blueprints really, um, and maybe Sandra Bullock floating around in this sort of 
green screeny scenario um, although it wasn't a green screen but with sort of a blueprint really and um, so it was fascinating to see it th- you saw it without the effects put in you saw yeah. her floating so some of the some some of the scenes it would switch wow. from scene to scene but they were obviously you know and where was she how was it being how was it being shot where in in those kind of scenes um well the background was was quite simply drawn so you knew what what was where they obviously figure out on computers how she's going to move it was mind blowing even at that stage wow i was pretty excited about the whole you know shebang so the there was a a slight spin off the film was co-wrote by by Quaron and his son Jonas yep his son has done this his own film which is there's, there's a moment in the film where where Ryan Stone communicates with somebody on earth and you don't know who it is really when you're watching Gravity but there's the, the in this spin-off film which you sent on to me and it's what a clever idea it's such a good idea she sort of has this nonsensical conversation you don't really know whether it's someone on a space station or she's like howling like a dog and uh, things yeah and you don't really know who who she's talking to and you don't even really know if it's real or you know at that stage and um and it turns out that the the short film Anningak um by Jonas Quaron um is is the answering part of that conversation and uh uh it's really beautiful a little short film set in Greenland, Greenland. um and uh apparently it was just meant to be an extra on the on the blu-ray release but now this sort of it's it's gotten really good reviews and it's sort of talking of possibly being nominated for an Oscar which would be obviously the first time you know a film and it's and it's little brother um, nominated in the same year. Here's here's a quick listen to that conversation, which is in both films. You can watch the full short of Aningak. It's at uh, bit.ly forward slash gravity short. Um, really nice little thing to go and watch either before or after you've seen Gravity. If you haven't already seen it, do go and see it while it's still in cinemas and you can get the full 3D effect of it. But keeping with that physics theme, every now and again we take something interesting online uh, as an item so that you can check it out no matter where you're listening into the podcast. In an earlier show we looked at Brian Eno's lecture on creativity and this week we're taking a video conversation between the novelist Ian McEwan and the theoretical physicist Nima Arkani Hamed chaired by Martha Carney. It's about the similarities and differences between art and science which took place at the Science Museum in London as part of the opening of the Large Hadron Collider exhibition. The video of the full conversation is about an hour long. We've made a short link to that as well, which is bit.ly forward slash art meets science, all one word together there. But there's a shorter video and an article with the best bits from it on the Guardian website, which you should be able to find pretty easily. Here's a little excerpt from the discussion. You know, this could be a, a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? What in God's holy name are you blathering about? No, that's not. That's from the big Lebowski, that clip there. <laughs> 
<laughs> could well be from the discussion, though. Oh, here's an actual clip from the discussion. <laughs> the pursuit of truth with a capital T, which is uh, underlying all of it. What, what it is that motivates people when they wake up in the morning uh, to do these crazy things with their life um, and, and to spend one, two, three decades uh, working um, with uh, not necessarily a payoff in sight um, until every now and then we, we celebrate these, uh, these uh, tremendous achievements. Um, there is something essentially uh, that there, there, there is an, an obsessive element to it which should be familiar to the artist. There is an obsessive element to it which should be familiar to uh, many people in, 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 in society. Um, and uh, and it's, it's driven by the pursuit of something much, much bigger than ourselves um, and of, of uh, being able to connect to something which is much, much bigger than, than the little trivial concerns of, uh, of uh, everyday life. And, and these very questions are ones which have been addressed by writers through the ages. I mean, Stephen Hawking was raised the question of why is there something <laughs> rather than nothing? And mm. that, that this kind of existential theme is permeating many people's work. Yes, and... On that question, it's very hard to imagine an answer that would what, what an answer would be. I find it interesting when they frame discussion about some of the similarities because there are there's a lot of points in the video where they go down a little warp of talking about time, space, holes, and things like that. But these these ideas of the similarities and differences, which is really what it's about, are what are quite interesting. And that idea of the obsessive element to it that once you get the kind of sense of an idea, whether you're an artist or a scientist. You can spend you can spend your whole life just pursuing that one thing with maybe no payoff in sight because that's not why you're doing it. Yeah, I thought I thought that was really interesting because they were what they both seemed to um, mention quite a bit was this idea of like the imagination was so important. You know, it was all about imagining how the world works and sort of like thinking of how how possibly could this problem be solved? It was the same thing in terms of the arts, you know, that, that you, your imagination has to propel uh, you towards some kind of representation of, of truth. I thought they were, they were sort of using the same tools, you know, in terms of doggedness and obsession and imagination and passion and, and excitement, you know. That bit about process, about the similarity between protests for a novelist particularly and a scientist where they use the term determined stupor, which is the, the main processes, which is where you basically sit at your desk and stare out a window for a while. And yeah, Ian McEwan said that lovely thing about, you know, I like to imagine that a scientist is the same as a novel that you like, uh, you're sitting looking out the window with your feet on the radiator with a, with a notebook, um, which... Which is lovely. I, I'm well. If you've got the time, why I not? Know, why not? And what is this foot radiator as well? I quite like. <laughs> quite like one of them. There was an interesting difference though, where in physics that they said the idea, you know, the idea that the cart comes before the horse, in that things happen and that that they're known. So the product is is there, and you're trying to figure out how it has come to be. Whereas in art often you start from a different place and you end up with the product which you then present to people as your piece or whatever. Yeah, like a, the artist is still trying to represent sort of truth, you know, that resonates with people. But it's almost like that the the scientist is, is attempting to draw back the curtain um, and reveal what's there. And then the artist is sort of like building, um, building the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't I have to admit that so much of this went over my head. You know, I really, I felt like the dude when you mentioned uh, Lebowski. Um, and a lot of it was very undude. But I uh, I did enjoy it, particularly that bit. And particularly um, Nima Arkani Hamid. I thought he was, 
I thought he seemed like a really lovely guy, <laughs> actually. And him talking about how um, the problem um, in the communication between art and science is more a problem of language in that their language that the, the scientists use to explain uh, the world is one of mathematics and it's just not a language that that many people speak and certainly not um, to the fluency that you would need to speak in order to understand even even a, a gentle discussion on theoretical physics. So, um, whereas, you know, uh, if you if you go, if you look at a painting or, or, or you listen to a piece of music, you know, the point is, is not that you know the answer, but the point that it, it sort of evokes a feeling in you and, and there is no right or wrong. Um, in it, um, and uh, but the fact that it's so universal means that it's transmitted so much uh, more easily than <laughs> theoretical physics. Yeah, I'm yeah, just gonna yeah. Keep saying that no, but it talked about they, they, there was the thing kind of on from that about originality that in, in science it's so important, to, well, for the individual, but not in the scheme of things, to be first with things that you have to get first with an idea. Whereas if you write a novel, even if it's a really bad one, it's still unique. It's yeah, still, you know, you might have plagiarized someone, but it's still uniquely your your perspective on it and yeah the, the, I thought that was actually really lovely when when um, Arkini Hamid was saying to be first is this is important to the individuals involved but it's of no importance in the grand scheme of things and it sort of shows the difference between the two disciplines in that there's that that's a pretty selfless statement to make that you know that scientists in general are really on a on a journey of discovery on behalf of everybody I met a woman if uh, last year actually called Arian Koch, who created the artist's residency programme at CERN, which is the largest particle physics lab in the world. And it's also the home of the Hadron Collider. Um, she, so she heads the artist residency programme there and she came to speak at a, at a, at a Dublin Theatre Festival event. She's got a lot of really good ideas on what art science is because art science and this crossover idea has become a big kind of trend in recent years. And mm. things like the Science Gallery and the Science Museum have sprung up as as places to explore these these connections and these crossovers um, but there's also a lot of things which just because there's probably more money to be got from things that have the science label than from the arts labels and she has written a really, really brilliant piece on, on, the, uh, on the art newspaper on, online which she kind of goes through the three things that art science isn't and the one thing that it is and the thing she says the first one that it isn't is art as a communicator of science the idea where artists represent science to the outside world which is basically art as publicity and communications tool the second idea of art science as a means of production where the kind of fascination is in the technology so the kind of gets rid of the idea of imagination and the third of, of art where it's like a snapshot of a cell and that's admired as beautiful in a, in, a, in a gallery and she's kind of saying that that's not really getting to to what it is they're kind of diversions from it but the fourth one she says the more invisible strand where the arts and the science are in fluid interchange just as they were in the time of Leonardo da Vinci when he moved easily between the two but the fourth one which is the really one is she said that, that the arts and science can express themselves in different ways the arts through the body and the mind often driven by the exploration of the ego and contradiction and the sheer messiness of life and science through equations directed collaborative research and experimentation which work in a progressive linear fashion there's a bit of a mouthful there in that I'm reading it off uh, off, off the article there so it's easy to, to get all those out of the way but that's a really good article I think that gets to the crux of, of what art science really is and I thought that chimed actually with what they talked about in this conversation Yeah I really I really like that article and I really like the examples she used as well she had there's was, there was this great one by this artist Oliver Eliasson um, called your split second house where, where he had strobe lights on 
uh, these sort of twirling water droplets. So it sort of froze um, a structure made out of water drops in time and it was supposed to represent sort of um, uh, like a black hole and how time um, inside one is completely different from time outside one. And you sound like Ian McEwan now, Lisa. I know. Is time real? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, go on. You tell me about it then. No, that's the... I haven't seen it. <laughs> and one of my favourite things of recent years that I saw that I, I think falls under the category of art science were these um, cloud installations um, by this Dutch artist called Bernhard Schmilde. Yes, that's uh, that's a. <laughs> he could, sounds Icelandic. He does. He sounds. He sounds uh, Haskins Icelandic there. Um, but so he creates the perfect um, conditions, the right temperature, the right humidity, and then he puts a puff of smoke into a room, and he generally has it in these quite surreal spaces, like. Um, I saw church. one this kind of decadent looking kind of classical interior. Yeah, yeah. Just just slightly incongruous um, settings. And he makes a cloud. And it's this beautiful um, ephemeral installation that only lasts, um, you know, sort of drifts and, and changes over the course of a minute. But it's just the most stunningly beautiful, magical thing um, to see a cloud in a room that you feel like you could touch that sort of what science and art are trying to trying to do if you want to to watch the full video for that again the link is bit.ly forward slash art meets science if you have any recommendations of other stuff online that we should feature on the show do send us the link on twitter at soundingspod or if you'd like to email us our email is soundingspodcast at outlook.com this week we read journalist Malcolm Gladwell's new book David and Goliath Underdogs Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants it follows the format of most of his work in that it attempts to upend preconceived notions of how the world works. In this book, he explores how what we think of as advantages and disadvantages are not always what they seem, making his case from a diverse bundle of examples ranging from basketball strategy and classroom sizes to the civil rights movement and the London Blitz. Um, I find that people are generally either enraged uh, or mm. enchanted by Gladwell's books um, and are really in between. And I Which would, one are you in? I would generally fall into the latter category. I, I do, I find his books really engaging and interesting and fun and I love reading them on the bus, you know. Um, this one, I was slightly more in between. I don't think it's his best book. We went to see him talk be, be, before reading the book in, yeah. the, in the Lyceum Theatre with the Staves playing the staves. a song or two. I love them and hate them. Why do you hate them? Because I'm really jealous of them and they're shiny hair and they're the fact that they've got <laughs> lovely sibling singers I, you know that's you it. wish you had I think it would be too much if there was three of you in fairness well thanks very much I'm <laughs> <laughs> very tell you um, oh okay. I mean in a good way I mean you know well we'd all you know we'd all be slightly how different. would one room contain the personality of three Lisa Hannigans <laughs> Jesus safe saved <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was that that was smoothly done. Um, yeah, we went we went to see the talk, and he talked about Alva Vanderbilt and her daughter Consuelo, who were super super um, rich ladies in in New York, who who turned out to be um, very important in the suffragette movement um, in America. And it was and you know he's such a good storyteller. That's that's that is the best thing about him, you know. And he's because he's a journalist, he knows how to tell a story. He knows how to 
keep you engaged and keep you interested. But therein sort of lies the problem in that he sort of, he tells you the examples that support his, his hypothesis. So, you know, there is a sort of a slight sense of, yeah, but what about the other bit? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, but I think it's always thought provoking. It's always interesting. The book's in three sections. The first one asks the question, why do we automatically assume that someone who's smaller or poorer or less skilled is necessarily at a disadvantage? He says, we have a very rigid and limited definition of what an advantage is. We think of things as helpful that actually aren't and think of other things as unhelpful that in reality leave us stronger and wiser. The first thing that came to mind when I read that was was from my own kind of schooling in Irish history, which is the effectiveness of early 20th century guerrilla warfare. And sure enough, that is the first thing that one of the first things he begins with some interesting facts about in relation to war, that 71.5% of the time a country that is say tenfold bigger than another country is likely to win against that weaker country but when the weaker side changes the parameters their winning chance increases from just under 30% to double that uh, 63% so when you change the rules that you also can actually then be an, at an advantage against the person who was seemingly uh, the bigger and more powerful, powerful person he also talks then about class size and what university you choose to go to there's, there's a chapter which is one of the ones I found quite interesting mm. probably the most interesting was the chapter on kind of being a big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond and how there's something liberating about growing up in the smaller pond you're really really clever and you want to go to Harvard and uh, you study and study, study and, you, and you get in you scrape your way in automatically you're put at such a different a d- difficult psychological Disadvantage because suddenly you're not the most clever in your class and, you're not, and, and you start all of these feelings that possibly you've never had to deal with suddenly really weigh you down. And uh, and actually, if you'd gone to a slightly less prestigious college um, and, and your confidence flourishes because you're still very clever and you're still doing really well, um, that confidence allows you to to do much better things and 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 with much uh, have a much easier time of it as well, and uh, and yet the other know, side of that you could say is that you know to to argue that is that you push yourself much for, much much harder when you are up against much greater competition and that you can you can reach kind of limits of things that you didn't think you could do because you're pushed harder. But it's that kind of trade-off between how much you're kind of intellectually challenged in the university and how much your confidence actually plays a huge role in your ability to go, to kind of go ahead and just try things out. Yeah, I think that's one of the elements of the book that uh, sort of uh, niggles a little bit in that so much of it is down to personality. You know, he talks about um, he talks about how dyslexia is in general a disadvantage uh, because it's, you, you find school harder, um, you find reading harder, and, and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. But in certain people, having to um, struggle against that um, disadvantage means that you can possibly become an incredible listener. Um, you possibly um, are quite brave in in terms of uh, speaking up for yourself um, or trying to hide the fact that you're not good at reading and in some cases you know you end up being the president of Goldman Sachs um, which is one of the examples that he uses in the book Um, and one of the things about the book that's sort of slightly difficult is because you think well that's down to personality he's not saying that it's the dyslexia that that, uh, gives you an advantage he's sort of saying if you're born with a personality that is uh, perhaps more confident or or 
you're talented or you're you're brave or um, dogged, you know, um, that actually having that um, seeming disadvantage of dyslexia combined with that person, those personality traits, you can overcome them with, uh, you know, flying colours. I, I think end. that's in the second section, isn't it, which is all about those type of desirable difficulties, desirable difficulties as he calls them. Yeah, yeah. And but it's sort of I th- you sort of think back to his last book, um, Outliers was about the secret of success and it's sort of about that you Mm. know he forms an idea and then picks a story to back it up and simplifies and shapes those stories then to work with the idea which which is what everyone learns to do in school or in college and make an argument for something and you back it up with examples but some of his examples are really reductive of what actually almost always is much more complicated in terms of the the reality of how of how history has played out and many of the examples that he that he might use. But you wonder then, well, is that a problem? Um, it it depends what you want to get from this book. If you want to take it as gospel, then that's no no good. You don't read this for mm-hmm. for a history lesson. But as you say, he's a fantastic storyteller. He uses these examples, which might be seriously reductive, but. But does it matter? There's there's the saying, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> um, and I think that once you bear that in mind, that does make for an enjoyable read. Although maybe a little repetitive. This is a whole book of, you know, a couple of ideas that from listening to us talk about it for five minutes, you probably got the sense of the book. You just, yeah. the stories are, are entertaining stories that you listen to for the, or you read rather for the sake of it. Yeah. And it did have some really interesting ideas that I, I hadn't really thought of. Um, one of the things that, that stuck out for me as being a little questionable <laughs> is that there's what, a moment in the book where he talks about the statistics of like losing a parent young and he says 67% of um, prime ministers um, lost a parent before they were 16 and then he compares it um, to US presidents and says 12 out of 44 presidents lost a parent and you know that's only... 27%. So he's sort of equating 67% and 27% as sort of this showing the same thing. Mm. And that just doesn't, I mean, you know, you know, I'm no maths guy. Um, but it, that did strike me as being bad. He does strip away an awful lot of complications in, in the stories that he tells. Um, and it does make for a sort of an elegant argument. But I think that, you know, that is the problem with his books. But I, it depends on how, on how you want to read them, as you say. Um, one of the bits that he mentions, which I thought was really interesting, was this uh, was this report by two economists, um, Late and Wolf, um, who wrote um, a book called Rebellion and Authority. Mm. And this was sort of the the thinking of the time. Um, Fundamental to our analysis is the assumption that the population as individuals or groups behaves rationally, that it calculates costs and benefits to the extent that they can be related to different courses of action and makes choices accordingly. Consequently, influencing popular behaviour requires neither sympathy nor mysticism, but rather a better understanding of what costs and benefits the individual or the group is concerned with and how they are calculated. Um, And that was the prevailing um, thinking of the time and it doesn't it, 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 I, you know it doesn't stand up um, and I think that was you know he made that point well The parts I found the most difficult to kind of take and swallow were the ones that were something where you actually know a bit about that history like where he's talking about the Impressionists and it's a very simplified version of that or where he's talking in the in the last section he talks about the 1970 British Army imposed curfew on the Catholic community of the Lower Falls in Belfast and um, there is 
a really good critique on this particular chapter from Jenny McCarthy in The Spectator. Um, she's talking about Gladwell and she says the author isn't a reporter, he's a theorist, an elegant teller of determinately illustrative tales. It worries me a little. I've started to wonder what other stories have been firmly sculpted into sleek Gladwellian shapes. I'm beginning to think that I would like to see his pile of offcuts. In this book, Eamon McCormick was destined for a particular narrative and his history was kept artificially tidy along the way. It's a pity since real understanding often lies in the messiness of lives. Instead, in the service of his overarching theory, Gladwell has sent some toxic simplicities on Northern Ireland ricocheting around the world. Easy reading, I guess, but poor history. Eleven days before Eamon McCormick finally died, an 18-year-old soldier called Keith Bryan from Bristol was shot dead by the IRA on foot patrol in the Lower Falls area of Belfast. He joined the army as a boy soldier and his Gloucester regiment had sustained one of the biggest casualty rates at the time. I wonder if Gladwell could tell us which of those two lads was the Goliath, which his kind of hypothesis in that chapter is that the British army assumed that its power was enough to overcome and completely misread the situation. But uh, I think that that critique is is totally on the ball. I think it's a bit clumsy, this book, but I I did enjoy it. So I I do do want to make that clear. Well, if you've read the book and you've any thoughts that you'd like to chip in, uh, do please say them to us. Our Twitter again is at soundingspod. Um, if you haven't read the book and you would fancy read Making Your Own Mind Up on it, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell is published by Penguin. This week, the movie that Lisa set me to watch is also about underdogs. Yes, once again, it is time to delve into the black hole that is Dylan's film-watching past. Uh, this week, you were sent through the classic wormhole that it is the Coen Brothers' little big Lebowski um, on a scale from very undude <laughs> to El Duderino. How, how did you feel about the big Lebowski? Um, well, I... I had seen this one before, but it hadn't sunk in because I was quite young when it came out. I was 11, I think it came out in 1998, 15 years ago this year. Wow, I can't mm-hmm. believe it. Time flies, eh? Well, the fact that you could give me, you couldn't, you know, I couldn't quote give you me an anything from quote. it meant that I'd, you know. I didn't know what you meant when I talked about the, the Lebowski bar in Reykjavik and yeah. it being themed around that and you said, did I have, was it White Russians, I think you said. Yeah. And I looked at you blankly now, I know exactly <laughs> what you were talking about. Of um, course. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant, it's it's ob- obviously. And, and, and the characters are what makes this film so great. There's so many interesting characters, from the kind of protagonists of the dude and Walter and, and Donnie to uh, to some of the kind of more periphery characters like Big Lebowski's daughter, uh, Maud Lebowski. Um, Apparently, uh, John Goodman said that it was his favourite film that he'd been in, who plays who plays Walter, who I think, I think Walter's probably one of the greatest... Uh, characters that has ever been ever been on screen actually supposedly based on uh, the writer and director John Milius about whom a documentary has just been made released in the UK this month called Milius wow we should watch that it's apparently the whole gun toting you know aggro <laughs> thing and even the look is based on him and and the dude was based on a guy called Jeff Dowd the independent film promoter who'd helped the Coen Brothers secure distribution for their first film and apparently his um casual approach to grooming and dress is, is, is shared with the dude <laughs> apparently a lot of the, the dude's clothes in the movie were Jeff Bridges' own clothes as well including his jelly sandals I'm not sure <laughs> the dude says man 147 times in this movie wow um, and apparently it was all scripted every man every dude apart from that one line when the dude says you're a human parrot you human paraquat yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was the only improvised line in in the movie and actually 
when you watch it, you imagine that it's mostly improvised because it does seem so perfect. Yeah. Perfectly human. They also say fuck 271 times or, or 292 times if you count variations on, on the, on the <laughs> F word. There's a thing, there's a, a thing I found online there called the Big Lebowski Quote Generator on thugbot.net forward slash Lebowski you click it and you keep getting some of the gold quotes of which there are many to, to, to pick out the dude is also in every scene of this movie yeah I think that's a classic film noir um, motif where you've got the, the uh, protagonist sort of guiding you through the story so even when the nihilists are having their thing in the diner, the diner they, yeah. you can see the dude's car in the background and stuff like that so clever <laughs> well, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make you watch a shit film, you know. I think my favourite line in the whole film is from Walter. And it's about the nihilists. Uh, say what you like about the about national socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> Autobahn, obviously, uh, based on craft work as well. Yes. As the kind of the kidnappers of, or, or the supposed kidnappers of, of, of Bunny Lebowski. It's funny, no matter how many times I've seen it, every time I watch it, I am confused. You know, every time I, I, I sort of forget who has done the kidnapping or not done the kidnapping or, and I think that's one of, one of the great joys of it, that it's sort of uh, slightly new every time you see it. I'll ask you again, did I urinate on your rug? No, like I said, woo, or peed on my rug. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is micturated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person? Come on, man, I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, uh... You're just... Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um... I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? <laughs> Just to give you a little uh, trivia test on this one. Okay. The name of Autobahn's album. N- Nagelbet. Oh my God, you are ridiculous. <laughs> Which is the German for nail bed. How did you... <laughs> That's like, you've won every time. You've literally not got a trivia question wrong. Oh. It's impressive. <laughs> Very impressive. So next week... Uh, you have to watch the film given to you by Harry Shearer last yes. week, um, which I will also watch because I haven't seen it in many years. Uh, Doctor Strangelove. Yes. I have seen, but many years ago. So I'm kind of in the Dylan Haskins boat of mystery. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. It's a dark. Wow, it's dark It is here. a dark world from, from <laughs> my boat here. It's very dark and dusty. Well, that's that's it for this show. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying the series, please please do tell some more people about it and pass on the link. The show is on iTunes, but we've also made a short link to it at bit.ly forward slash soundingspod, which will take you right through. And if you'd like to contact us, our Twitter handle is probably the best way to get in touch with us. That is at soundingspod. For now, we'll see you further on down the trail. <laughs> Indeed. Goodbye. Take her easy, dude.